The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Welcome to church this morning. My name is Chase. I am the family pastor here at Rolling Hills. It's an honor to be here. Um, and Pastor Jeff, again, is he, he's at Pilgrimage Festival. Be praying for him this morning. He gets to hang out with Kathy Lee Gifford. How cool is that? Um, so we are in the middle of a series called Anxious for Nothing. And I'm so thankful that we have a church that addresses this issue within our culture, within our society. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but according to the American Psychiatric Association, we are 40% more anxious than we were at this point last year. Now that's just a year. And just think about that for a moment. We have more technology. We have, we're the wealthiest. We have the most education is any point in, in history, yet we are the most anxious people in history. That's why I'm thankful that as a church family, as a church home that we can address issues like this. And here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to leave you with the impression that after a six-week sermon series, those things go away. Because for, for many of you, it, this has been a lifelong process. This has been the challenge in life for you, anxiety and being anxious. And, and so here's, what, here's the thing. I want you to hear this from me. A part of God's healing for you very well may come through professional help. It may come through counselors or therapy. It may come through a physician. It may even come through medication. And if that's the case for you, hear me. It doesn't make you a lesser of a person and it doesn't make you lesser of a Christian because God can use those things to bring about healing in your life. Now today, this message I have for you is not one of those messages that I would naturally have chosen for myself. In fact, this, this message that you're going to hear today really comes from deep-rooted events in my life that, that, that make me ask the question, why? Have you ever had those in your life? But it's in those, in those events in my life, in those situations and circumstances in my life that also they push me to deeper faith in Christ. We've been tackling this, this, uh, this, uh, this psalm, Psalm chapter 23 we've been going through. It's been kind of an anthem for us throughout this series. And David, David wrote, this, wrote this psalm. And he wrote this song from a unique perspective because David was a shepherd. And so he's making a parallel between God being our shepherd. And this is how he opens up the psalm. Would you follow along with me? Psalm chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Now, I love that. I love quiet waters. I love those pastures where we can lay down. I love the fact that God comforts us in that way. But then David makes a turn. He makes a shift here, something that we don't like to talk about. And this shift is really a lot of our anxiety comes from this shift that David begins to talk about here in Psalm 23, verse 4. 
He talks about this issue that causes much of our anxiety, fear, and worry, or at least amps those things up. And he says this, even though I walk through the darkest valley. What do you mean? Wait, you mean the shepherd walks us through this dark valley? You mean my God walks us through this sharp valley? I I don't want to go through these dark valleys, you know. And I want you to know this from a shepherd's point of view. Like if you're a shepherd, David was a shepherd, so he understands whenever you have a herd, um, they were in the lowlands. And so the idea was to drive them from meadow to meadow, meadow to, to, good land, to, to good land to better land always. It was constant. So in the, in the winter months, they would spend time in the lowlands. And then whenever summer approaches, they would make their way up to the highlands, up to the mountaintop meadows. So they're going from one meadow to the next. But in between, as they travel, guess what they're traveling through? In order to get to better meadows, they have to travel through these valleys. And these valleys weren't like great places to be. In fact, they were dangerous. They had deep ravines. Predators were lurking. There were unstable ground and potential for floodwaters. But the shepherd was leading them through it. And here's what I want you to get before we begin our message today, is that God doesn't take us to the dark valleys. He leads us through them. He leads us through them. So why these dark valleys? What's the purpose behind them? Before we jump in, we're going to look at a, a book of the Bible, uh, James. The first part of James, and I'll tell you a little bit about more, more about James in just a second, but will you pray with me before we j- jump into Scripture? Father, incredibly thankful for you and the fact that we get to worship you this morning. And my prayer for us as we jump into this message today, um, which I know that people are carrying a lot of things into the, the room this morning, whether that's circumstance, emotional pain, whatever it is. God, I pray that, that we would meet you in this place, that through your words we would forever be changed by them. And by the time we walk outside these doors this morning, God, that we would have an encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So James really talks about this issue of difficulty and pain, but, but we're not talking—the person who wrote the book of James, I'm not talking about one of the 12 disciples— That's not the person who wrote the book of James. It was actually a guy who had a unique perspective into the life of Jesus. It was actually Jesus' brother James, his half-brother. So so James has been walking with Jesus all along. And here's something fascinating about James. James and his other siblings did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. Did you know that? In fact, they thought he was a little nuts. They thought he was crazy. In fact, at one point in time, they try to seize Jesus and prevent him from doing ministry. And if you're thinking as James is a real person, which he is, this totally makes sense. Like, what, what would it have been like to grow up with Jesus? What would it have been like to be the brother of Jesus? Right, right. I'm, I'm just thinking, like, he was probably always in second place to Jesus, like in races, whatever, whatever it is. Jesus was probably never getting in trouble while James was always getting in trouble. What would it have been like to be the brother of Jesus? See, then Jesus started his earthly ministry and crowds were following him. He was performing miracles. He was saying weird things like, I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God. And James is looking on and James is like, my brother is, is nuts. My brother is crazy. So let me ask you this question. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is the son of God? Ever thought about that? 
So what convinced James? Why go from not following to following? Was it that Jesus changed? Was it something that Jesus said? Was it the fact that James was reflecting on the life of Jesus and had this aha moment? What was it that, that made James really believe that his, his brother was the son of God, the Messiah? It was one event. One event changed everything, and that was the resurrection. You see what changes your perspective whenever you see your brother dying on a cross, and then three days later he's eating fish with you? That changes it. It changes it. So not until after the resurrection did James become a follower of Jesus. So after, James, after that, James joined the rest of the disciples. He joined, he joined the rest of the disciples, and Jesus was like, all right, guys, I'm a, after his resurrection, and he's about to ascend to heaven, he said, here's what I want you to do. Don't do ministry. Don't go out and share the gospel until the Holy Spirit comes. And then the Holy Spirit actually came. You can go read Acts 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit came, came on Peter, and Peter stands up. I don't know if you remember this. Peter stands up in front of thousands of people and begins to share the gospel. And in that day, the church was birthed. Thousands of people came to know the Lord as Savior. In, in, uh, as Savior. The church was birthed in Jerusalem. And before James wrote this letter, there were about eighteen to 20,000 believers in Jerusalem. Okay, the church was growing. And then something happened. See, the Roman government didn't like the fact that the church was growing. Neither did the Jewish Pharisees. So what, they, what did they do? They stoned a guy by the name of Stephen, who was an early believer, who was sharing his faith. They stoned him to death. And in that moment, a great persecution in the church broke out. So Christians had to flee. They had to run for their lives. It broke out. But here's what's fascinating. While they were running for their lives, they were still sharing the gospel along the way. They were still sharing their faith to the ancient Roman world. So, you're like, where are you going with this? So in response to the early church's difficulties, persecution, and sufferings, James wrote this letter. That's significant for us today. Now, now here's what I want you to know. Right after James wrote this letter, I think this is a good side note, he was attacked by an angry mob who took him to the top of the Jewish temple, threw him off the side of the Jewish temple, and he didn't die. They went down and they started beating him with sticks. And while they were beating him with sticks, guess what he was doing? He was praying for those who were beating him with sticks. Finally, with one last blow, they killed him. So I, I, you're like, well, that's a Debbie Downer before you. But I, I just want to set this up. I want to set this up for you because I think when we understand the context of the history in this moment, it really changes how we read this, this text. So James opens up this letter to the early persecuted church, and he says this statement. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? Now, now, there's one thing that we can all agree on in this moment. There's, there's literally different types of, of difficulty that you and I experience. Even when we look at this passage, they are suffering unlike maybe what we have suffered. You see, they're suffering because of their decision that, that is made to follow Christ. And when we look at things like this, when we look at our sufferings and sufferings that happen throughout this world and difficulties, immediately our mind goes to what? Why? Why are these things happening and there's a foundational theological question that you and I have to answer before we can tackle this issue of pain before we go there. If we have a good and benevolent creator, sustainer of life, then why does pain and suffering happen? 
or, or why wouldn't he be willing to eliminate that suffering from us? Christians find this tension very troubling. We have a hard time with this one. And if you're not a believer in this room or you know people who, who are atheists, uh, then, then, then this is where they draw the line. This is, man, this is, I can't, I can't understand this. I can't get behind this. But before we, before we answer the question, I think we have to ask a different question. Would a good God eliminate pain and suffering? Would a good God, C.S. Lewis addresses this issue in the problem with pain. And in it, he argues that humanity desires not so much a good God, but a kind God. Meaning kindness cares not whether the object becomes good or bad, provided it only escapes suffering. You see, a lot of times we, we, don't want a, we don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. Uh, right? I, I, I'm a dad. And so whenever we, we're coaching at home, we're coaching our daughter, we're disciplined. We don't give her everything that she wants. We're trying to educate her. And then we send her to grandparents. What happens? All that is ruined. They undo what we have done. And so they're spoiling her, and they're giving her what she wants, and, and then they send her back to us. And guess what we have to do? We have to redo what they had done. And so the idea is, man, uh, sometimes we would rather have a grandfather in heaven than a father in heaven. We want a God that just gives us what we want. And, and Lewis suggests that a true and loving father would rather see his loved ones suffer much than become happy and despicable and not close to him. In other words, a good God may not eliminate pain and suffering from this world because, because they are used for a greater means and end. They're used for his purpose. And if God knows more about our circumstance than we do and God desires good for us, could it be that God wants to use those things to grow us? Could it be that pain helps us grow? And no matter the reason in this room, what you're going through, there's, we, can't, we can't get rid of pain. It's unavoidable. We, we can't just snap our fingers and it's gone. I can't promise you that whenever you leave this room, those struggles that you brought in this morning are going to disappear from you. But what we can do is respond is how we react to those things how we react to the experience, how we deal with the pain, and, and what do we do with those things? Will you choose, what will you choose to do with the pain? And then James writes this. We're going back. Consider it pure joy. Now, whenever I think about going through tough times, the last thing I think about is joy, right? Don't you? Like, I'm, I'm thinking, James, okay, I don't think you understand the concept of joy. How about puppies, James? Like, that's pretty joyful. How about um, a walks on the beach? That's pretty joy. Baby's laughing. How many? That's that's pretty joyful. Baby's laughing. What about seventy-two degree weather, bright sunny skies, walking through your neighborhood, saying hi to your neighbors? That's pretty joyful, James. Not persecution. Not illness. Not loss of a job. Not a family crisis. Are you kidding me? So James has said, consider it pure joy. This single statement might have left the early church really confused, but James is not talking to the faint of heart. He's talking to a group of individuals that were currently in the middle of a mess. And James, here's something to note. James didn't say be joyful for the circumstances. Be joyful in them. Be joyful in them. You see, joy doesn't mean happiness. Happiness is temporary, but joy is found in all circumstances. And then he 
he goes into this. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, there's a level of holiness that comes with our pain. There's a level of holiness that comes with our pain because we become more dependent on God through it. Just like sheep become more dependent on the shepherd as they go through these valleys. You see, what happens when they go through these valleys is they, they're more attentive to hear the shepherd. They're, they're closer to the shepherd because they know if they veer off, predators are lurking. So they stick close to the shepherd. There's purpose in these valleys. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There's purpose in it. There's a level of holiness that's attached to our pain. And, and then Paul kind of says, he says, look, if you're having a hard time with the pain that you're going through or the difficulty or the sufferings, then, then here's what you should do. Ask. Seems kind of simple. He says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Here's where we find purpose, guys, because purpose leads to understanding, or wisdom leads to understanding our purpose. The, the early church understood suffering. Like, these were guys who literally left their homes. They had to leave their homes. They, they had to leave everything that they knew, their friends, their families. In fact, I imagine that as they're on the run, they're trying to figure out where their next meal is going to come from. They're trying to figure out where, how they're going to feed their children. And maybe some days they're not even feeding their family because of what they're going through. They understand suffering. But here's the thing. Their purpose was greater than their difficulty. Their purpose was greater than their difficulty. Our pain is meaningless until we find purpose in it. But when we discover our purpose, what happens? What happens to us? Do you know those people in your life that have used their pain to bring glory to God? My mind immediately goes to people like Sherry Akers, who is a mother-in-law of a staff member of ours and... She spent years caring for her ill mother. I mean, years. She was taking care of her. And six months after, after her, her mother passed away, her husband survived a brain aneurysm. And she went from caring from her mom to caring from her husband. And, and she could have easily said, you know, why? Why is this happening? This is too much for me. You know what her response was? Praise God. I'm thankful to God that he prepared me to take care of my husband by... by allowing me to take care of my mom. We hear stories like that and we're thinking, that's staggering. Like who says things like that? Whose faith is that big? It's stories like that that really help us put things in perspective. Or a guy by the name of Tim Burke. Many of you know Tim. He was a partner here at Rolling Hills. His family still goes to church here. Tim is one of my faith heroes, and he battled cancer for years and years, but he used his cancer to leverage. He leveraged his pain for the glory of God. And he made videos after videos, and some of you guys have seen all these videos of him having difficulty with, with struggling with some pain and just some emotional struggles that he has. But, but it, it, every video was about 
was about sharing Jesus with others. Every video, I've seen him, uh, I saw saw him before he passed away. I saw him use that for the glory of God and even speak into the lives of those in our church and, and to his family and even to his kids. We hear stories like that. What happens when someone's faith when when people put their faith and trust in God in the midst of suffering, what happens to our faith? Here's what I think happens. It blows up. I'm not talking about just emotional pain or just just physical pain here. I'm talking about also emotional pain. I want you to hear uh, hear from a, a girl in our church. She's a college student from Mississippi State who talks about her battle and her, her, the way that she processed pain and how God delivered her from pain. Let's listen to this. March 15th, 2013 was the day I planned to end my life. Growing up, I had a very loving family, very close family. Um, for the wide majority, my family is all believers. And so I grew up in the knowledge of the Lord and um, knowing Jesus and So we moved to Tennessee from Florida when I was 10 years old in the middle of the school year, which was tough, and started to struggle with, I think it might have started being a new kid and a little bit of bullying, and so that might have been where the lack of self-worth kind of started to seep into my heart and into my mind. And, you know, now I look back and I think my identity and and that lack of identity was, was essentially a lack of knowing who the Lord was. And so I got to a point where my normal self, which is naturally pretty confident and outgoing, and I just felt like a crisis in, in why I was here on earth and not understanding who I was, um, why the Lord had me in such a dark place, why he, he allowed that. After a lot of years of going through this, I basically decided that it would just be easier to to end my life. Luckily, a big part of my story and, and the big part of the reason why I got through it is that um, I reached out to one of my really good friends and I told her what I, what was going on and I told her what my plan was. And she was shocked I and mean, she had no, no idea, which is the hard part about that. It's, it's probably the hardest part about telling someone because usually it's not, you know, I wasn't outwardly, I probably wasn't outwardly depressed or, or different noticeably to other people. And I said, you have to promise me that you won't tell anybody. Um, this is totally between us. Praise God that she broke that trust, that, that, that selfish trust. Um, and she went to our youth pastor at the time. I think actually the next day coming home from school, my parents sat me down and they had gotten a call from my youth pastor already who had set up um, recommendations of, of where to go from there and biblical counselors and um, yeah, at the hardest part of all of it was was talking to my parents about it um, because it wasn't it wasn't their fault, you know. And, and the immediate reaction of a parent is to think, "What did I do wrong?" I'm so thankful for parents who were loving and, and who loved the Lord and who um, and who realized they couldn't fix it and, and asked for help and asked for community and asked for pastors and friends and counselors to step in and. Um, and carry that burden with us. Um, for me, it was a lot of prayer and a lot of scripture and, and firm truth under my feet um, that I could absolutely bank on. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. He lies me down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He renews my life 
all I really think about is is how much life I've had since you know five years ago, six years ago, and so I think that's what that day is now. Um, just a really beautiful reminder that um, the past six years are a gift. I'm just hopeful. I'm hopeful in in what he's going to do, and in through me, and in and through the people around me that I've gotten to meet and that I will meet. I do think today I can look back and and praise God for that time of. Um, of just pain and just that valley walking through it because I learned a lot about who he was and and about who I am in that season. I'm Katie Kuhn and I have something to live for. It's stories like these that give us hope. And uh, just for a second, I want to look into the camera because I don't know if there's somebody at home that is currently struggling or somebody in the room, but but if you're currently struggling with ending your life, you need to have the conversation with somebody today. You need to seek help. If you know of somebody that is currently struggling, they've confided in you, you need to tell somebody. Here's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to isolate us to where we feel like there's no hope and there's nothing left for us to do. But find somebody today, seek help, have the conversation today. It's stories like these that, that lead us to to have hope. It's stories like these that deepen our faith, that let us know that we have a greater, greater purpose in the face of, of difficulty. It's stories like these where we heard from people in our church that inspire us even in the midst of those things that are going on in, a li- in our lives. But I'm not naive. I know this is difficult. A lot of us experience difficult things. And and for my wife and I, early on in parenthood, we received news that our daughter had a, a, a liver condition that was going to change her course of her life. She had major surgery, and, and, and we're still not done with that battle. And so we have to go back for doctor's visits, uh, big doctor's appointments. And in fact, this Friday was a big doctor's appointment for us. And, and you know what I was thinking last week? I was thinking, literally, you know, I was thinking, what if we get bad news? And then I have to preach today on pain and suffering and anxiety. What if I get bad news? Like that was processing through, through my head because we can do one of two things when we deal with things like that. It, we, it can lead us to spiral into depression, to addiction, or apathy, or we can use those things for the greater good. This is where faith is tested. And in these moments, we have to ask for wisdom. God, Reveal something to me that I'm just so uncertain about. That's why I'm grateful for stories like Katie, Tim, and Sherry. You see, our difficulty should not define our potential. Meaning this, we're really good at seeing the difficulty. We're seeing, seeing when we come to our difficulty, we see roadblocks. We see, we see hard work. We see boundaries. And we don't see opportunities. What would it take for us to shift that? Do you allow your difficulty to bring glory to God? Let me just tell you, just because difficulty may come and pain and suffering may come does not mean that you're not in the center of God's will. It it does not mean you're not in the center of God's will because God uses our pain for his purpose. I I look at a guy like the Apostle Paul who was writing to the early church in Corinth and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he addresses this this church, and he writes down all the things that he has suffered. And I want you to hear hear about some of those things. He said this, 
I've been in prison, I've been flogged, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received 40 lashes, three times beaten with a rod. Once I've been pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, spent the night in the open seas, but been constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers and bandits, fled from the Jews and Gentiles, been cold and hungry. If anybody has the right to boast, he says, it is me. But if I boast, he said, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why? Because my weakness is made greater. In my weakness, he is made greater. Guess what? Right after he wrote that, you know what he said? God, can you remove just a little bit? Like, I have this thorn in my flesh. I just want you to remove it. God, God, can you please take this away? So Paul had this struggle, but but the, the Lord responded to Paul in this way. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, God's work in me is greater whenever I'm weaker. Because in my weakness, I'm more dependent on his power. See, oftentimes it's in those valleys that we get the most nourishment because we're walking so close with the Lord. And then James said, you know, you, you're trying to understand, you're asking for wisdom, but whenever you ask for wisdom, don't doubt. Don't doubt. Do not be like the waves of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. I can't help but whenever he says that phrase, that, 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 that James is, is remembering a story about his brother Jesus on water. I don't know if you remember, the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and they were in a boat and and a big storm came up and they were rocked by the waves and the the wind. And then they looked in the distance and they they saw what looked like a ghost. And it wasn't a ghost. They figured it out after Jesus calls out and he says this, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter's like, hey, if it's you, then tell me to come out there and walk. And and Jesus said, come. Matthew's like, Wait. And so he puts one foot in after the other, and he begins to walk on water, going towards Jesus. But then what does he begin to do? He begins to look at everything around him. He sees the difficulty. He sees the situation that he's in, and he becomes afraid, and he begins to sink. I love this imagery, because whenever he begins to sink, he said, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out in his hands. You see, that's, that's what Jesus does. He, he, he responds to us. He immediately re- reached out his hand, pulled him up out of the water. They got back in the boat, and guess what their response was? Praise. They got back in the boat, and they began to praise Jesus. You see, I wonder, what, why this story? What was Jesus doing? Why this lesson that he was teaching to his disciples? And I can't help to think that Jesus was preparing his disciples for their earthly ministry, that they would encounter situations that were overwhelming and and harmful and painful, and their job was to trust him through it all. That's how he wants them to respond, is that they may go through these, these situations that may seem impossible. Jesus was preparing his disciples to build his church in the face of opposition. And as a result of them trusting Jesus in the midst of their pain, guess what? We're here today. 
We are here today because early on a group of disciples says, no matter what, we're gonna pursue Jesus. The church grew not because it was easy, but because in the middle of their pain, they praised. I guess that's my question for us this morning. So whatever you're going through right now, what would it take for you to trust Jesus with your life? What would it take in the middle of the pain to praise? Let me pray for us. Father, I know that that these valleys that we go through are really difficult. And for many of us in the room, we're currently going through a valley. But God, you show up. You are with us and that you are for us and there's purpose in it. God, give us wisdom. God, that somehow, some way that we can praise in the middle of the pain. see darkness is fading walls of fear brick by brick will come down your light will shine lifting me out of the shadow I'm gonna praise you, I'm gonna praise 
Earth, an author, um, she said this. I want us to get this this morning. We think that we have, have to take what is broken and make it perfect in order to be used by God and bless others. God thinks in a completely different way, however. He took what was perfect, his son Jesus, and made him broken in order to bring us healing. God sees purpose in our brokenness even when we don't. And he can use it to bring forth beauty that blesses those around us. No matter what you're going through in this room today, that God has a purpose for your story. Those things that lead to anxiety, God wants to redeem and use. What will you choose to do with your pain? Will we praise in the middle of the pain? Next week, you're not going to miss because next week we, we kind of tackle this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, well, next week we're going to hit, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. That the Lord never leads us or forsakes us. He, walk, he walks beside us and guides us through every situation that we're going through. Well, the, the, the morning ushers would come down for, to take our morning offering. We transitioned into uh, offering another act of worship for us. We continue our worship. And, and you may be wondering um, about a few things. Maybe the first is what happened to our change that we brought last week? Last week we had this change for change. The ch our church family brought, uh, brought just loose change from your cars, from your pockets, and we dumped it in some cans. We're going to let you know what ministry that we chose to bless. And then I'll tell you an updated price of how much we gave with our loose change. Is that cool? Let me pray for our offering and then we'll watch a video. Father, we love you. We're grateful um, for what you're doing in this place. And God, we pray that you use these gifts to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Watch this video. In Nashville, there's over 11,000 homeless people in Nashville and over 4,000 of those are children. In Metro Davidson County Schools, there's over 3,000 children that are registered in school today that are homeless. Well, Jennifer, 15 years ago, there was a group of people that started going under the bridge in downtown Nashville to serve uh, an amazing population of people here in Nashville. And you've been a part of this for, for some, some time now. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the bridge ministry and the impact that, that God is making in the homeless community of Nashville. Yes, yes. Well, Candy Christmas is our founder and CEO. And 15 years ago, she found herself in the deepest, darkest depression imaginable. She had had a very, very very successful Southern Gospel music career, and she had this beautiful family, had had this amazing ministry, won all kinds of awards, and yet she faced this depression. And she was with a friend, and there was a man laying tile in his friend's house. He looked up at her and he said, ma'am, looks like you could use a pick-me-up. And she said, 
yes, sir, I could. And he said, well, I feed some homeless people underneath the bridge. You want to come? And she said, I think I would. And there were seven beautiful homeless men that were there that night. She popped the trunk of her car and she served them jambalaya. He birthed within her a purpose and a desire to, to really make a significant impact. And so the next Tuesday night, she went back. Those seven men turned to 10 and 10 to a dozen, a dozen to a couple dozen, to where now we serve 300 to 500 homeless people every single week. And the beauty of that story is that depression that, that she was trapped deep within broke as she served. And a couple months after going down under the bridge every single Tuesday, her husband uh, said, Candy, do you realize you're not depressed anymore? And she, it was just like this aha moment for her. She goes, I'm not. We have church under the bridge every Tuesday night where all of our guests receive a hot meal. Then we have a powerful church service. And at the close of that church service, we distribute about 15,000 to 25,000 pounds of groceries, uh, clothing items and toiletry items to our guests. Our Bridge to Kids program and started providing weekend food bags for children to take home with them so that they wouldn't be hungry. So we started with uh, just one school when we were serving about 20-something children. Now, each and every week, we serve over 3,000. What would you say to them about how to get plugged in, and why would the bridge be a place that, that you would want them to come and serve, and, and, and how does that process happen for them? We need volunteers every single Tuesday night underneath the bridge, uh, working with our homeless and food insecure individuals that are there. But in addition to that, we do have a warehouse. And the way that we're able to make all those distributions throughout the week for our Bridge to Kids program, as well as the resources underneath the bridge, is by volunteering in the warehouse and doing the preparation needed to give out all of those resources. So there's all different kinds of ways to get involved. And all you need to do is either call us at the Bridge Ministry or to sign up on the website at bridgeministry.org. Great. That's great. Well, we're so thankful for you and thankful for all of the staff of the Bridge Ministry and each and every one of those volunteers. And we just want you to know that we want to continue to support and rally around you and the entire team as you seek to make a difference in the, in the homeless community of, of Nashville and, and families beyond that. In addition to that, we've been doing something special in the life of our church uh, this past week called Change for Change. And we've been asking families and kids and small groups to, to bring change, to bring dollars, to, to see what the Lord would do when we bring our little bit and ask him to bless it. And so on behalf of all of us at Rolling Hills, we want to let you know that we want to give um, everything that was collected from Change for Change to the Bridge Ministry. So we have a check <laughs> for you guys, you. and we want you to know that we are so thrilled to see what the Lord has done. And we're just so thankful that we get to be a little part of it. So we hope that this gift um, helps in some form or fashion as you continue that ministry. And on behalf of all of us at Rolling Hills, we want to say thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus. And we wish you all the best as you continue to live out that calling of the bridge ministry. Thank you so much. This is, this is incredible. And the lives that it will touch, we won't know this side of heaven what it truly means. Thank you. That awesome. So with all of our change, the quarters and the pennies and the nickels and dimes that we brought, we raised $5,000 for the bridge ministry. So let's give a hand. 
a little bit goes a long way, for sure. For sure. Next week, you're not going to miss as we continue our Anxious for Nothing series. And also, you're going to be able to walk through the new space next week whenever you come and be able to pray over the space, write prayers on the walls. And it's going to be really a great and special time for us as a church family. Will you stand with me as I pray us out? And also, uh, keep in mind that we're going to have pastor, pastors or our pastoral care team is going to be down here to receive people this morning. If you want uh, to talk to somebody or you need um, prayer this morning. Father, we love you. We're grateful for this day. God, I pray that you would use it, what we've learned today, um, uh, to, um, to advance your kingdom. God, but, but we, use, we pray that, that, God, you would just continue to speak to our hearts each and every day, that we would know that our lives have purpose, and you have a purpose for our lives. And God, uh, may we forever be changed by what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.